Hey there, you're listening to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. If you'd like to find out more information, you can go to campusbiblestudy.org. Hi, my name's Zoe. Um, So we're going to read from Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting at verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? My name's Tim. If we haven't met, I'm one of the staff here with Campus Bible Study. And we've got a great passage before us today, don't we? Every week's a great passage, but... It's really, uh, I've been enjoying working our way through Ecclesiastes. Hopefully you have been if you've been here the last few weeks. And if this is your first time, well, you've got a great passage, a nice poem about time. What more could you want? Well, let's pray and ask that God would speak to us through his word as we look at it today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this time that you have given us. Father, please teach us more about us and you and the world that you have made that we may use the time that you give us wisely. We pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Can I ask you, what's your relationship with time? Is time your friend? 
Are you one of those people who always hands in their assignments weeks before they're actually due? When it comes to an exam, you've finished hours before the exam actually finishes. Are you one of those people who always arrives five, maybe even ten minutes early, no matter what it is for uni or work or that job interview? Or are you someone who finds time to be that kind of relentless enemy? Uh, the thing that you never have enough of, it's always chasing you, you're always late. Uh, you start the assignment the day it's due, you start the last essay question when they say 10 minutes to go. Uh, you never have enough of time, you're always left wanting for more, chasing your tail. Uh, you even turn up late to your job interviews, but at least they know what they're getting in for if they hire you. <laughs> As you look at your day, at your week, at your year, do you just want a bit more time? Time is unrelenting always marching forward, it never pauses to let us catch up, it never pauses to, well, let us catch our breath. Time, well, it gives direction to life and it, well, pushes us forward in life, doesn't it? Life is marked by time, some would even say life is time. In our life we look back in time and that's all locked off, it's the past. We can remember some parts of it, but we can't do anything in it. In the future, well, that's all ahead of us. We can try and imagine what it may hold. We can try and plan for it. But again, we can't actually do anything there. What's left in the middle is this little stage carved out, hemmed in either side by time. And we, well, we live in the present. We get to do stuff in the present. That's all we can do. Alan Lakeen, who's apparently an expert in time, he wrote a book on time, he's written a few books on time, he says, time is life, therefore waste your time and waste your life, or master your time and master your life. Now, while that sounds pretty kind of time management guru speak, it's what we believe, isn't it? We've got limited time, how are you going to use it? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to use your time well, therefore you'll use your life well. But if you waste your time, well, you've wasted your life. And using our time well, we seem to think that involves, well, putting as much stuff in there as possible. Then you're more likely to get the right stuff in there. Surely that's a, a good start. But what does Ecclesiastes, what does the Bible, what does God have to say about time? The time we live in, the time that we have. If you are following along in your outline, we've got three headings we're going to look at. Do we have time? Do you know the time? And in the middle, when time is up. It's all about time today. So firstly, do we have time? As we read just then, as Cam took us through that reading, we saw a bit of a picture of what time is all about, didn't we? It's a poem about time. A beautiful poem. It's a poem, so I'm sure art students like it, and it's got great structure, so even the engineers can enjoy it too. It's very orderly, isn't it? There's a time for, well, a time for everything under the sun. We've got these 14 neat lines that give us these contrasting sayings. Verse 2, it's all about the limits of life. A time to be born or die. A time to be planted or to be plucked up, uprooted. Whether human, animal or plant, time delimits the, the life that we have on this earth. And it also puts a flag for us at the beginning of this poem that these times, these seasons, some of them are largely outside of our control. You don't choose when you're born. The sea doesn't choose when it gets planted. And it's often much the same at the end of our lives as well. So some seasons are outside of our control. So this can't be a, a list of things that we should do because not all of them are in our control to do. But rather it's a reflection on life in this world. Verse 3, it talks about what we do. 
both to life and to objects, causing harm or good, destruction or creation. Verse 4, it covers the range of emotions, from sadness to joy. There's a time for both in the world. Verse 5, well, it talks about paddocks and relationships. I'm not quite sure how they go together. But again, uh, we see the positive and the negative. And so it helps us to see that it's not just a simple neat. Here are two opposites or two connected things. Eh, some are a bit harder to understand. Verse 6, well, we get introduced to Mary Kondo, even before her time. Uh, sometimes we search and we keep stuff, but at other times we need to cast away and lose things. Just ask, does it spark joy? Well, maybe not. The preacher had other things to say there. But verse 7, uh, we talk about clothing and speaking, a time, well, again, for opposites. But which one's better, to be silent or to speak? It's just the point, isn't it? While there's a clear pattern to these phrases, it's far too simplistic to say that one of these is good and one of these is bad, or do this or do that, or that they all kind of fit together. It's a range of different experiences that happen in our world. And none of them are inherently wrong. Even when we come to verse 8, with love and peace, hatred and war, there are right times for all of these as well. So through life we experience these different times and seasons, some brief like laughter, others long and drawn out like war. But even if there is a time for everything, what about the stuff that we want to do? Where does it fit in? So having observed the world around him, the preacher turns to consider the worker in verse 9. And he's left longing for more. Have a look at verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given the, to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Have you ever tried driving a manual car? Maybe you learnt on a manual and you've got that experience. If you're driving along, you're trying to work out how to use that clutch thing and move gears at the same time. And sometimes you're in second gear and you go looking for third, but you end up in fifth gear. And what happens? Well, the car lurches and shudders along. Does it feel like that's what happened between verse 8 and 9? Did we skip a gear? We go from this nice poem about time to, well, lurching into what gain does the worker have from all of his toil? Did we miss something? Well, if you've been here the last few weeks, hopefully it doesn't feel too much of a jarring transition because this idea of toil is one we've been looking at these last few weeks. Chapter 1 and verse 3, it was this opening question that the preacher had. What is the gain of the toil that we do in the world? Chapter 2 was a search of where is meaning found in toil and we've come back to it this week again. As we consider times and seasons, what do they have to do with the toil that we do, with the search for meaning in what we do? Now one thing that the preacher sees as he undertakes this study is he sees that work is from God. It's not nearly a necessary evil just to eat and to have shelter, but God actually made people to work, to toil, to do something profitable, to serve, to contribute to the world around them. Work is what people do, what they're busy with, even through the times and the seasons of life. And God has made all things good and pleasing. We see that in verse 11. And God's behind all the order, the order of the poem, the order that we see in the world. And if you like, you can picture it like God setting the stage that we toil on. He's made the backdrop, He's put the set around us, He's doing the light, the production. In the middle, we're toiling in this whole scene, this whole world that God has created and put around us. 
we merely the, act, the actors toiling away and God's providing and shaping the seasons and the times that we're in. And in verse 11, we read something both, well, a little profound and a little intriguing at the same time. It says that God has put eternity into man's heart. Now, one of the things we like to do at the Bible Talks is to learn together from God's Word that we can actually all read this passage and discuss it and understand it together. Now, last week, we didn't have any opportunities to talk with the person next to you. And don't worry, I, I heard the feedback. Many a slip said, where were the questions? I heard the murmurings over afternoon tea. And so, back by popular demand, there's a chance to talk with the person next to you. Here's a question for you. Uh, what does it mean for God to put eternity into man's heart? Since you were asking for it, I'm expecting big things. Have a chat and I'd love to hear your answers. What do you think? What, what does it mean for God to put eternity into man's heart? There's good discussion. I'm glad you obviously enjoyed it. It's an interesting verse, isn't it? This picture of eternity. We've got the general idea, don't we, that it's got to be something longer, more lasting. But where is it? Is it seeing that there might be a God behind the times? There's someone that, you know, we just see this little brief bit of time, but is there someone who's bigger, who orders these times and seasons? Is it the idea that there must be life beyond this one? It, it seems clear from, well, what Ecclesiastes is saying in our observation in the world, that, well, we've got a desire to know and an expectation that there is more to life than just the 70, 80, 90 years we have on this earth. I'm not sure if you've ever considered whether it's strange or striking, depending on what you think, that most people in most countries and most religions for most of history have believed in a God and have believed in some form of afterlife. This modern phenomena that we have or that we experience in Australia and much of the Western world of this growing scientific rationalism of atheism and materialism, that this life is all there is, there is no God, there is no afterlife, is still a minority belief and it's well, somewhat strange in the scope of world history. God seems to have put something, well it says here, God has put something in man's heart that seems to drive us to expect that there is life beyond what we experience here. And that there is some power or some force or some being behind what we experience in life, the times and the seasons. And the Bible says that thing that we're longing for is God. God has put something in our hearts. He's given us an awareness, a desire to know that something bigger than us and ourselves. And that points us towards God. But as we look around the world, we can't find out what God has been doing from the beginning or to the end. We want to know knowledge, we want to understand that, but that knowledge itself and time itself, well, it belongs to somebody else. So what then do we do? Well, it's interesting, we land in a similar place, we come to a similar conclusion to what we saw in chapter 2 last week. Have a look at verse 12. I perceive that there is nothing better for them, for man, than to be joyful to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil, for this is God's gift to man. So if we can't know all that is past and the future remains a mystery, well, the preacher's conclusion from observing the world around him is enjoy the present. Enjoy your toil and the fruit of your toil. Seek to do good, for this is God's gift to you. Well, in a somewhat corny way, but hopefully memorable, the American cartoonist Bill Keane said, Yesterday is the past, tomorrow is the future, but today is a gift. That's why it's called the present. Isn't that corny? Well, it's somewhat the picture we see here, isn't it? That 
what can we do? We enjoy the present. But beyond enjoying the, enjoying the present, what does the worker gain from his toil? Have a look in verse 14. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, and that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. The focus here is on God and his works. What he does endures forever. Time is in his hand. His toil is lasting. And what's more, for all of our striving and toiling, we don't add to or we can't take from anything that God has ordained or is doing in the world. All the times and the seasons in that opening poem, God controls them. God gives them that order and that structure. Time is in God's hands and he dictates all of this. And so while we know that God does it, we can't know the mind of God or the plan of God and we can't change what he's doing. And God did this. Why? Well, so that we would remember that he is God and we aren't. That's what verse 14 tells us. God has done this so that we would fear before him. That we would rightly recognize that he can do stuff that we can't. That he is infinite, though we are finite. Though he is eternal, well, we just long for some of that eternity. And so we rightly respect and we honor the one who has power beyond us, who has control of our lives and the things around us. We rightly fear God because he controls time and he knows time. So we fear God and we enjoy his daily provision. But what do you do when you meet a person who seems to know time like God? And not in a vague kind of way of a fortune teller or an astrology column, but someone who knows the future with a definite, well, definite clarity. Have a look at Matthew 20 where we see this with Jesus. Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and he took the 12 disciples aside and on the way he said to them, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. That's nothing too profound. They're on the path, they're going there. But he said, when we get there, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes so that they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Now that's a fair level of detail, isn't it? It's what different people are going to do to him. It's hard to kind of orchestrate that. Now you could say that, well, he's had a few run-ins with the Jews and the Jews can't actually kill him, so it makes sense that the Jews will, well, they condemn him, and, but the Gentiles, the Romans, they're the ones who actually crucify him. You might think that he could predict that with a bit of you know, rational observation. But you've got to be sunk with that last line, don't you? And he will be raised on the third day. No rational logic or prediction can say that you're going to come back from the dead on the third day. You can't make that happen unless you know the future. Unless you know what time before you hold. And as history went on to show, it all happened exactly as Jesus said. So what do you do when you meet a man who knows the future? Who knows time like God? Who knows what is before him and seems to be able to work things out just as he said? Well, I suggest we treat him like we treat God. You fear him as you fear God. Because the one who controls time, he's the one who also controls life. That's what we see in verse 2, isn't it? There's a time to be born and a time to die. So what then happens when our time is up? Well, the first question that concerns the preacher in verse 16 is whether there'll be a time for justice. And this isn't merely an academic question, just speculating about what the future may hold. It's a pretty real question for him and for us in our world, isn't it? 
Because in our world, there's all kind of injustice. Whether it's what we saw at Easter in Sri Lanka, suicide bombings killing hundreds of innocent people. Or a few years ago, when a passenger jet was shot out of the sky. Who's been held to account for the hundreds who were killed? Or what about a little closer to home, when we lie and steal, when we cheat and speed, when we mock and bully, and we seem to get away with it? Will anyone bring us to account? Have a look at verse 16. Moreover, I saw that under the sun, that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. God will judge. When the preacher looks to the places where he expects to see justice and righteousness, the law courts, the righteous people, well, there too he finds wickedness. And so if even in those kind of go-to places of good people and good actions, they're corrupt, what hope is there? Well, the one hope that is left is where the preacher turns and that that God will bring justice. But what is the preacher's picture of judgment here? Or what is his hope in verse 17? Here's another chance to chat with the person next to you. Uh, verse 17, what judgment does the preacher have in mind? Have a chat to the person next to you. See what they reckon. It's a bit of a harder question, isn't it? It doesn't seem like there's an obvious answer. The judgment seems universal. Both the righteous and the wicked will be called to account. And as we keep reading, the judgment seems to include death. That's at least part of it. Is it the whole of it? But while this kind of picture of this universal judgment may sound surprising, well, it's really appropriate, isn't it? Both in Ecclesiastes, even in a place of righteousness and justice, there is wickedness. And in our world, no matter what corner you look in, there is evidence of greed and pride, of lust and lies, of deceit, deception and drunkenness, of anger and envy, and all that's before you even start to break the law. The Bible calls all this stuff sin. It's stuff that flows out of a life where we put ourselves first as number one. Either consciously ignoring God or rejecting God, or just pretending that His way isn't best or He's not watching at that point in time. And the preacher is right. God will bring all to account. There will be justice, which should comfort us as we look at the world around us, and it should concern us as we look at ourselves. Because calling for God to bring justice, which our world needs, is putting ourselves in the firing line. And what is more, this isn't just some abstract and distant picture of justice, it's actually an imminent reality. Have a look at Acts 17. As we're thinking about times, God has set a time when justice will come. Acts 17, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and the imagination of man. We don't make up God. God is there. And God is going to overlook the times of ignorance. But now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He's fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed. And of this He has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. God has fixed a day when he will judge. That day is set in time. It is the future that is ahead of us. And he has told us who that judge will be, as none other than the man who knew what was ahead of him as he went into Jerusalem, as he went to die on that cross and rise again. And that resurrection declares him, it vindicates him, it declares him to be the Lord of all and the judge of all mankind. 
no matter what country or religion or time in history you live, you will come before Jesus as the perfect judge. And while human judges are corruptible, they have imperfect knowledge, they do the best they can, Jesus is a perfect judge. He knows all, every thought and intention and action that has been done throughout all world history. And he will bring it all to perfect justice. It's a terrifying thought, isn't it? But it also helps us to see how amazing this judge is. Because as he knew what was ahead of him in Jerusalem, he willingly went there because that was his purpose. His purpose in going there was, well, to offer himself in the place that you and I deserve to stand. In perfect justice, he offers to stand in our shoes and to take the judgment that God pours out on our sin, on our rebellion, on our wrongdoing. He did it out of love to stand there and absorb God's wrath against you. And having taken our punishment, God vindicated him by raising him from the dead and appointing him as the judge of all the earth. So the question is, as we look at Jesus, we see that he is the judge, but he is also the saviour. His death was to offer you forgiveness. Will you receive that forgiveness that he went to Jerusalem to offer you? Or will you face him as the judge that God has raised him to be? That's the, the question that is before us. And the thing that stands between those two is what God commands all people to do in verse 30. God commands all people everywhere to repent. Repentance, it starts with a change of mind. It's the change of mind that says, I'm no longer the boss of my life, the most important thing going around. God is. And with that change of mind, that recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord, the recognition that he is my saviour, well, that then flows into the rest of my life as all that I do changes. Because I used to do it for myself, for my pleasure. But now I do it for the God whose pleasure it was to die for me and to give me forgiveness. So everything changes. But I also receive this incredible gift of eternal life, of forgiveness. This is God's promise to all those who repent and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. We get to greet Him on that last day as our saviour and not our judge. As we're thinking about time, the question probably comes to mind is, how much time do you have? Well, God only knows. But God tells us that it is the next thing on his plan for world history. God tells us that we shouldn't put it off. I don't want to rush you, I don't want to push you to make an irrational decision, but I do want to make sure that you don't procrastinate. You do not know how much time you have. And the day when that judge comes will be too late. So do consider it. The Father, God, is being patient with us like rebellion children. He's being patient giving us time to turn, to repent, to receive his salvation so that we meet him as our saviour and not as our judge. Have a look at uh, what we see in chapter 2, no, 2 Peter 3 verses 9 and 10 where God tells us about this time that we live in. Peter says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord, that day of judgment, when Christ returns, it will come like a thief, and the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it, they will be exposed. That day of judgment is coming, it is near, and it will come like a thief when we are not expecting it. Now is the time that God is being patient that we can receive salvation. 
Judgment is coming. The time is set. We don't and we can't know when, but we do know how we ought to respond now with repentance and faith. But what will happen after God brings judgment? After our time is up, will there be extra time? Well, if we look back in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we read from verse 18. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All goes to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward, and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. Here's one last chance to chat with the person next to you. Uh, from these verses, what makes people special? I'd love to hear your answers. Go for it. It's interesting, isn't it? What is special about man? There's some distinction drawn here. You guys are a lot more optimistic than some of the other TBT talks. Uh, others have just said nothing. As the beast dies, so dies man. All is vanity, verse 20. It seems like he goes, there is something distinct about us, but we're not that special because we all came from dust and we're all going back to the dust and the stuff that makes you up now, that wonderful gift of God that you are, well, it's going to be broken down and eaten by worms and go into something else in the future. So, look, that's a bit of a bleak reality check. It's interesting, there is a, a little bit of speculative hope as he looks forward, though, isn't there? In verse 21, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and of the beast goes down into the earth? What the preacher didn't know, we do know. But it's been something that people have been searching and seeking and trying to understand, well, ever since the preacher and probably long before the preacher. Because the preacher, there he is observing the world around him, and it's pretty hard to know if there is an afterlife. Not many people come back from the dead to tell you about it. In fact, very few. Empirically, it's hard to test, though a couple of years ago, I'm not sure if you saw it, an article did the rounds about some German scientists who claimed to have proved that there is life after death. They got a bunch of volunteers and they made them clinically dead with a bunch of different drugs for up to 18 minutes. And then they resuscitated them and found out what their observations were. And they claimed to have proved that there is life after death. Now, I'm not sure whether you're excited or sad, it's actually a hoax article, they didn't actually do it, they didn't actually kill a whole bunch of people and then bring them back to life. <laughs> but maybe a little closer to home, there's a whole genre of books that claim to, well, give stories and experiences of, well, seeing the afterlife and then coming back, of near-death experiences. Uh, one that came out, well, a number of years ago was The Boy Who Came Back From Heaven. Now, sadly, this book is also a hoax. It's not actually true. Though this boy was in a coma at age six and he told these great stories of meeting Jesus and angels and going to heaven, it was made up. As he wrote 10 years later as a 16-year-old, he said, I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. Now, it's pretty interesting, isn't it? We want these stories. We want some kind of picture or some assurance or some guarantee of life after death. But that kid has got some wise words to say, doesn't he? Of saying, well, where do you go looking for them? Not in stories like that or hoax scientific articles, but come back to the Bible. There we find one man's experience that, well, it gives us surety 
about what is beyond the grave. Because that one man who knew what the future held, he went to Jerusalem to die. He was crucified on a Roman cross. He had a spear shoved into his side to make sure that he really was dead. And he was buried for three days. And then he rose to life again. And he proclaimed that all who believed in him, who came to him, who repented and trusted in him, they could have eternal life. He said, there's life beyond the grave and I am proof of that. And you too can have that life that I have if you come to me. While the preacher said, who knows what happens to the spirit of man? Jesus says, I know. And if you trust in me, your spirit will live on. You will live on, not just a spirit, but with a body like my resurrected body. That is the great assurance that we have through Jesus. Have a look at what Paul says as he writes to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Paul goes to some lengths to go, this isn't some backyard hoax. What happened as Jesus went up to Jerusalem was the fulfillment of what God had promised for hundreds of years before that. And the fact that he was raised bodily from the dead wasn't just what, well, a father and a son made up. No, that was seen by a whole lot of different people and they're alive. Go find them if you doubt this story. There's a whole lot of witnesses and a whole bunch of them, though we can't talk to them now, They've, res- they've written their words and their eyewitness observations in our Bibles that we can know and that we can have assurance what lies beyond the grave for us. You see a little hint there, isn't it? Uh, some of those, most of those are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Death isn't the end. Death is just a sleeping until we have that new life, that resurrection. That is the confidence that, well, God offers to all who come to Him. So, when your earth, time on earth is up, will there be extra time? Yes. But extra time, it's, well, I don't think it's quite the, the best way to describe it. I remember back to, in high school, I was playing the soccer grand final. At the end of our full, full time, time was up, our scores were locked. So we had two periods of extra time. They were shorter and they also came to an end. But the time that's to come for us, it won't come to an end. It is eternal. This life is but a breath. The life to come, the resurrection life, well, it is eternal. It is lasting. And you see that all of this time, it's all about Jesus. He knows time in a way that we don't. He will judge all people at an appointed time, a set time. And his death and his resurrection, it opens the door to us for all eternity. This is what we see in some of well, the most famous words about Jesus in the Bible. John 3.16 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. And we're reminded of what's at stake a few verses later. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, that great gift of God. But whoever does not obey the Son, who keeps rejecting the Son, shall not see life and God's wrath remains on him. So can I ask you, do you know the time? Not that it's 10 to, but we will finish in time. But do you know what time we live in? The time that God has appointed for us. To know the time, we need to know the past. We need to know the person who changed world history and time for, for all time. Because when God stepped into the world as the person of Jesus Christ, time changed. 
We live in the year 2019, 2019 AD, uh, 2019 years after Jesus came into the world and changed world history. Uh, we call the time before when Jesus was born, BC, before Christ. After that is AD, which is Latin for Anno Domino, Domini, that's not pizzas, Anno Domini, <laughs> subtle difference, uh, which means the year of our Lord. It's not after Christ, it's the time that he continues to reign and to rule. I know that we've changed it to BCE and CE before the common era and the common era, but you know what? It still pivots around that same central event that changed world history forever. The time when God stepped into the world that he made in order to go to Jerusalem to die, to offer forgiveness for the people who rejected him, to rise to life again, to give an offer of eternal life, to be declared as the judge and the ruler of all, and to usher in the age to come. Time has changed with that one event. So if, event. So if you want to know the times we live in, you need to look back to Jesus. He has changed everything. And he reminds us that God has set a time when he will judge all people. And so knowing this allows us to find meaning in the present. Life has purpose and direction. We're not stuck in an endless cycle. The end has begun with Jesus and there is a definite date when God will return to judge. So in this time that we live, well, what's the point in chasing after passing pleasures? Marks, comforts, luxuries. No, we should live now to invest in the time to come. Is Jesus your saviour? Now is the time to get right with God. If Jesus is your saviour, now is the time to let others know about the times we live in because it doesn't take much to look around us and see the world doesn't know the times that we live in. How can you let them know that they need to get right with God and understand the times and receive eternal life? Because having known the past, we find meaning in the present and we have confidence in the future. We've seen that rightly recognises the time. Well, it's about responding to Jesus and as we respond to Jesus, that door is open. We have eternal life. We have security and forgiveness and hope. Death will come. Times and seasons will pass. But we know that we are secure in the hands of the God who controls time. So, where are you at with Jesus? And do you understand the times? Today, if you've come to understand the times that we live in for the first time, and you're ready to make peace with God, I'm going to pray a prayer now. A prayer, it's a simple prayer of repentance. We've seen that that's what God calls all people to do in the world. It's a simple prayer printed at the bottom of your outline and it's on the screen as well behind me. What does the prayer say? Well, it acknowledges God, that God is the God of time and it says sorry to God that we've used the time He's given us for ourselves and not for Him. It asks God to forgive us with great confidence knowing that God stepped into time at the right time to die and to offer us forgiveness. So we know because what Jesus did through his death and resurrection that he will forgive and he will give life. And then ask God to help us to use the time that is left for us in this life for him, for his good and for his glory. If you'd like to receive God's forgiveness, his gift of eternal life, I'm going to pray this prayer out, now, out loud now and you can pray along in your hearts. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we thank you that you control all time and have ordained this time of patience and salvation. I'm sorry that I've spent the days you've given me ignoring you and opposing you. Thank you that Jesus died for my sins at the right time and rose to offer me eternal life. Please forgive me and grant me this gift of life with you. Please change and strengthen me to use whatever time you give me for you and your glory. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.